From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Yampa Valley is doing some economic soul-searching as Colorado weans itself from fossil fuels. The loss of coal here will be very significant for our community and for our valley, but Hayden, I think, has done a lot of work and we're fortunate in our proximity to Steamboat. We certainly have the airport, we have the new school, we have young families moving here, which is great. Meanwhile, commuters push for a train from Craig to Steamboat. People are taking into serious consideration whether or not they can afford to live in outlying areas and commute. And bringing bison back from the brink. Without the buffalo existing, we won't exist. We are one and the same. They're our relatives. And so with their near extinction, we were almost nearly extinct as well. When your car needs too many expensive fixes, donate it to CPR. It's super simple. We'll even get it picked up at your convenience. The proceeds support CPR, the service you turn to for fact-based news, and new and timeless music. Let your old car make great radio happen. Call 866-415-0005. That's 866-415-0005. Or get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to begin today's show in the Yampa Valley. Steamboat Springs is the best-known community on account of skiing, but coal and agriculture have been just as important there as tourism. Now, coal production especially is waning, and other communities along Highway 40, like Craig and Hayden, must adapt. Two stories today about economic reinvention in this valley. The first unfolds at a granary where farmers and ranchers used to store and ship their crops. It was a gathering place, too, but became a hulking relic until Tammy and Patrick Delaney saved it, buying the century-old structure in 2008. Now it is again a Hayden hub with a coffee shop, a wine bar, and a community hall. Patrick, Tammy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Thanks. We are connected through a video chat, and I am seeing just the most remarkable space behind you. Where are you? So we're in what we currently use as a community barn dance hall, but it's the large warehouse where grain was stored, and either a train would be loaded or someone would come by with a truck and fill their truck with grain or bag grain for their horses or what other animals they had. And it's a pretty spacious warehouse that we cleaned up over the years. And now we use primarily for barn dances once a month. Barn dances. There's a long tradition of that, I understand, in Hayden. And Tammy, as I look at the background, it's just really intricate woodwork. And then you've warmed the place up with these inviting white lights. Oh, I love party lights, yes. (laughs) Well, maybe you could paint a bit of a before and after for us. Um, Yeah, well, you're laughing, I imagine, out a mix of dauntedness (laughs) and maybe you're marveling at your own project a bit. Tammy, what did it look like before and give us a sense of the after? Well, before, I would come by here for grain basically for my horses, I get my oats here. At that time, it was full of livestock and horse feed. 
and a lot of empty bags of grain and horse feed and such that would, through the years, just kind of accumulate in the corners. So at the time when we went for this leap of faith of buying the inventory of a feed and tax store with this granary facility thrown in, the previous owner, he basically scraped off a four by four section of the concrete floor to show me that it was a concrete floor. Mm. Um, they don't make places like this anymore. It's all full dimensional lumber. Part of the facility is old wooden bins for livestock pellets. Uh, as someone who hates dusting his small condo, I really can't even fathom what that cleanup and transformation would have been like. You know, it's fascinating because this was a leap of faith. You had no clear plan in 08. You really bought it for the feed store operating in part of it. And you said this, the granary, the largest part of the building was thrown in sort of as extra. Patrick, did you have buyer's remorse? Many, many times, I think, Ryan. <laughs> um, you know, we bought it because we thought it needed to be saved, right? And that was the building and the store. But we naively thought that we could run the store to fund the, not even restoration, just rehabilitation of the building. But we we're a little too far in front of that. And while we got it cleaned up, sadly, the feed store was not a profitable business for us to run. Hmm. Well, and so you, I guess it's a different kind of feed that you're involved in now, and that's feeding people caffeine, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's a caffeine. And I would say a lot of love is how I describe Aww. it. And how I had to describe it to the banker at one point is it's not about really making a living. It's really about making a life. And that's a lifestyle choice to create these gathering places. And the previous owner definitely had that. In fact, he had a sign on the door that said Nampa Valley Coffee Pot, which I just loved <laughs> because you'd go by at any time of the day he was open. It was typically the guys would be drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and talking about everything. And there's a lot of magic to that in the community. It's hard to be unhappy at a coffee shop, I think. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the transformation of the Hayden Granary. This is near Steamboat Springs in the Yampa Valley. And to some extent, its transformation is also a picture of how Hayden itself is transforming, which we'll talk about. Well, you got a $120,000 grant from Colorado Preservation Incorporated for a new roof and facade. And besides the grant, you two have taken lots of other steps to ensure the structure will continue to stand as the heart of Hayden. You know, I, I suppose the folks in Hayden know to go to the granary, but if you're flying into the airport there, which is like a big tourist port, you know, it is. or if you're driving through on Highway 40, I'm not sure I would, I would know to pull over to the granary for coffee. Uh, how do you make this sustainable and draw people in? It's a great question. <laughs> um, one that, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, there's a lot of word of mouth. We have a lot of people that, you know, live in town, spread the word, or they live in Steamboat and fly out of Hayden or, or commute to Craig. They stop by. So the word of mouth uh, spreads quite a bit. And then there's a lot of people, and in, in we would include ourselves in that category. When you drive through a place, you look for interesting sites. And many, many, many people have stopped by and visited here because they see the grain elevator and they're like, you know, what's activated out front? And they're like, that looks like an interesting place. Mm. We've also added four apartments. So we have two short-term and two long-term apartments there. 
that brings a fair number of people in. And then uh, there's a brewery right next door. And that certainly helps bring people to us as well. Yes. it's. I mean, it's de rigueur, right? It's Colorado. Sure. There's going to be a brewery. That's right. Uh, <laughs> has the building ever left you in tears? <laughs> Almost lost our branch, which we absolutely love. So yes, there's been a lot of challenges through it because we probably ran the feed store four years too long. And yet I, I feel like our community has been really what's enabled this building to come forward into its next chapter. As a great example, the feed store, when we were closing, people were bemoaning the fact that suddenly this place that they would go to once a month to get either their dog food or their steer food that they couldn't meet anyone because it was the only place they could meet in town and i one day went well what about instead of dog food how about coffee and they're like oh man we'll be in every day and so what we did is transform the coffee shop because at that time we did not have the funding we could not apply for any loans because of the financial challenges we literally did a community supported coffee shop so we sold coffee in advance so we had what we call a gaggle so instead of buy 10 get one free they'd go all up front and for $50 get $55 worth of coffee drinks and I'll say and the, the the gaggle is a cute name because the coffee shop is the goose coffee shop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have all kinds of takeoff on Wild Goose coffee, yes. Uh Aha, okay. Yeah, and it's kind of the concept of where three or more are gathered. Patrick, was Tammy implying there that you had mortgaged your own ranch to make this possible? Well, I mean, that's a simple way to put it, I think. Uh, We put ourselves in a very precarious financial situation that took many years to get out of it. So, yeah, we risked our home and you know, a lot of things because of it. And in hindsight, it's hard to say why we did that. But at the time, it just, you know, we're sort of like bad gamblers. You know, our <laughs> luck's got to change, right? So, oh, it's, um, yeah, I appreciate your candor. It's really refreshing. Um, well, I will add to that. We have two grown children. They're turning 28 this weekend and 26. They were in their preteens and early teens. It was an incredible experience. And similar to us, doing a leap of faith for a ranch that we could raise our kids with livestock and learning how to grow and nourish their own food. The premise around the feed store was a way for the kids to learn that work ethic. And I would say the education they got was priceless in a lot of respects because they also look at risk and financial aspects in a whole different way than many of their contemporaries. A lot of times, you know, we ask this question, would we do this again? And, you know, the first instinct is to say no way. But then you talk to it, we're like, okay, yeah, maybe, you know, it didn't turn out that badly, but it could have been really bad for us. I mean, this is like such a lame comparison, but, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and we would go to the family farm every summer in Waverly, Iowa. And the time spent around the combines and the grain... And that life, you know, it transformed me. So I, I get I get it when you talk about your kids that way. I just want to put the granary into some context. So Hayden has a few bright spots against the backdrop of coal, you know, sunsetting there. You have a $66 million new school 
250 housing units either under construction or approved. I gather there's a tension between kind of old and new Hayden, no? 2,200 people, some of them got to think, let's keep it as it was? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you have a lot of that. I mean, one of the differences, just our experience, Hayden to Steamboat, you know, Tammy is a Steamboat native. When we first moved here, there were a lot of old families in Hayden that had been here a long time and, you know, definitely didn't want to be like Steamboat. But, you know, that being said, yes, the loss of coal here will be very significant for our community and, and for our valley as a whole. But Hayden, I think, has done a lot of work and we're fortunate in our proximity uh, to Steamboat. We certainly have the airport. We have the new school. We have young families moving here, which is great in a small town to have that because it means our town is going to you know, survive and be vibrant. But you know, the jobs, as, as I'm sure you've been talking about, you know, the jobs that come with especially tourism don't equal the jobs that you get from the power plant and the coal mine. Yeah. But it's, it's a wonderful place to live. And I think for the foreseeable future, we'll remain that way. We glancingly mentioned the barn dances at the beginning. I think, Tammy, you're in a barn coat. I don't know. It looks like a barn coat. I, I imagine that it's drafty in that space. Do the barn dances make it all worth it? <laughs> barn dances are a lot of work as well. So <laughs> we, we need to be better at recruiting volunteers for the setup. But absolutely. And it's a tradition Hayden has had for a very long time. We have everything from the little two-year-olds bebopping up and down to the beat to 80-year-olds who know how to cowboy cha-cha and know how to swing beyond belief. And so it's an all-ages gathering point that you kind of put aside all the all the little partisanships that seem to happen anymore and instead come together as a community for fun. Pretty special. So yeah, I guess it's worth it, Ryan. That, that's the long and the short <laughs> answer. I did appreciate the asterisk, though, that they're also a lot of work. You know, I think with um, certain kinds of businesses, beds and breakfasts and sure. um, maybe bookstores and coffee shops, there's this romanticizing about what it's like to run these businesses. But they're freaking exhausting. Well, Richard Bach has a great quote. It's on the wall in the coffee shop of you are never given a wish without the power to make it come true. Dot, dot, dot. You may have to work for it, however. And I, I'd have to say we are now seeing a lot of the wishes and dreams and visions coming forth and actually happening. And yet the reality is you have to work for it. It's only taken 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Patience. Thank you both for being with us. I look forward to meeting you at the granary someday soon. Barn dance on October 21st. Come join us. The last one of the season, Ryan. Okay. Patrick and Tammy Delaney refurbished and repurposed a century-old granary in Hayden, Colorado. All right, another story of economic transformation in the Yampa Valley after a break, specifically hopes for passenger rail. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Jenna McMurtry. As a news intern for CPR this summer, I covered health, education, and justice across Colorado. You also heard me on NPR a few times. 
CPR offers opportunities like these and more to current students and recent graduates to set up the next generation for success. Learn more about our internships and fellowships at cpr.org jobs. Back now to the Yampa Valley, where tourism and agriculture and coal have mixed to create one of the most desirable places to live in Colorado, but a place whose economic future is uncertain. Our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, shares a potential solution to the Valley's housing and commuting woes. For 20 years, Eli Vesley has driven the 40 or so miles between Craig and Steamboat Springs. I've seen a Lots of aftermath after accidents. Guy hit a bus and he passed away. The, one of the passenger buses last year. Lots of head-on accidents. Vesley is one of the 2,700 people who commute from Craig to Steamboat for work every day. 2,700 may not seem like a lot, but that's about a third of the whole town of Craig. Add in commuters from Hayden, skiers who fly into the Yampa Valley Airport, numerous wildlife crossings, and it quickly becomes a lot for Highway 40's two lanes to handle. As you get into wintertime, you see people that just don't notice the black ice and lots of cars flipped over. Noticed in the last few years, it seems like there's more, and I don't know if it's just more people going or just faster vehicles. Given the lack of affordable housing in Steamboat, more workers will be forced to make that drive every morning with Eli or move elsewhere. What we're seeing increasingly is that people are taking into serious consideration whether or not they can afford to live in outlying areas and commute. That's Sonia Macy's, Route County Commissioner. The housing in the outlying areas is less expensive, but the commute is not only costly, it's also unsafe. Macy's is among those boosting an idea that has so many fans and could address so many problems it's almost hard to believe. Transit, sure, but also carbon reduction, worker shortages, wildlife protection, affordable housing, and even a just transition opportunity to help Colorado's departure from coal. A Union Pacific rail line already connects these communities, all the way from Vesley's home in Craig, past the granary and depot in Hayden, near the Yampa Valley Airport, and into downtown Steamboat. That train currently carries coal to the Craig and Hayden power plants, but those are closing soon, and Sarah Jones sees opportunity there. This is now the art depot, so it was a former train station in Steamboat Springs. We had passenger rail until about 19, the end of the 60s, 1968, 1969. And even before that, Route County we were shipping strawberries and cabbage to New York. Jones is the social responsibility coordinator for the Steamboat Ski Resort. With the Craig and Hayden coal plants to the west scheduled to close in the next five years, she said the ski area sees a chance to revive passenger rail on the existing tracks, even going so far as to connect Denver all the way to Craig. You know, there's two things that we're thinking about, and part of what the governor's office is interested in. One is inner city, meaning from Denver to um, the Yampa Valley, so ending in Craig. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're obviously, I mean, that would be amazing. Different different and use. That would sure. be connecting, like, basically Winter Park through Kremlin exactly. up to here. Exactly. So that would be, yeah, Union Station to Winter Park, 
Kremlin, Bond, and then up here. So that's a little bit of a different rate like that you could imagine that would be more of a vacation ski train. But what we are thinking in this valley is a commuter train. So that would go from Craig to Hayden to Steamboat, possibly to South Route as well. That means commuter service for locals and the option for a car-free ski vacation for visitors. The project has a lot of fans. Sonia Macy's, whose county commissioner office looks southwest to where the train tracks are, says it's about time. Are you surprised by how much enthusiasm there seems to be for the project now? I'm not surprised. I'm surprised it's taken this long. I'm surprised it's taken this long because it's been sitting right here in front of our faces for all of this time. It is a historic resource and asset that we have utilized traditionally and historically. So I'm not surprised that people are excited about it. Earlier this year, Macy's and other leaders in the area shared that enthusiasm with state leaders, including Colorado Department of Transportation officials. A part of their pitch is what the train could mean for Moffat County, where Craig's post-coal future gets more attention for its symbolism than its potential. As soon as this Nissan goes, we are on the highway. Head west on Highway 40 out of Steamboat, and you can talk to Jennifer Holloway. The train conversation is so exciting, and what it has done for, like, hope in this town, it's really caught on wildfire. Jennifer runs the Craig Chamber of Commerce. She's heard all the ideas for Craig's next act after the coal plant shuts down, from those that might be far off to those that might be far-fetched, and plenty about the status quo. We had a meeting about eight weeks ago, maybe, with state about climate, and and it was kind of a contentious meeting, and it was going, you know, everyone just, no, don't close, you know, the same kind of conversation. As soon as we brought up the train, the the whole, like, energy in the room changed. A lot of the folks in the room were like, I remember going to the train. It also is a huge thing for our morale. What our community would feel with that coming back would really help with connecting and feeling like the state and the feds really cared about how we were going to get past this. And that's a huge benefit for us to have. It'll be a minute before anyone is taking the train, but the wheels are turning. The effort has a name, Operation All Aboard, and the opportunity comes just as federal money is becoming available for expanded passenger rail. Elected officials at the state and county level have asked CDOT for a service development plan to analyze the project, which would help in determining what it would cost. Governor Polis is already mentioning the Northwest Rail Project in the same breath as similar efforts for the Front Range. That means a lot up in Craig, where Holloway says while the coal might not come back, the train still can. Everyone here in Moff County loves the idea. You know, people are excited to get it back. In Craig, I'm Tom Hess. CPR News. This train is a clean train, you know this train. This train is a clean train, I said this train. This train is a clean train, everybody ride it in Jesus' name because this train is a clean train, Lord, this train. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. We'll turn our attention from the Yampa Valley to Washington 
where Congressman Ken Buck is a holdout in the speaker vote. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. This train takes on every nation because this train is a clean train. You know this train. They didn't want the mural there, and they asked me to paint over it. And I refused to do it, so I lost my job. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about Denver's street art. Take this white paint, and I want you to use it to indicate for us your experience with white supremacy in America. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Credit Union of Colorado. The U.S. House remains without a permanent speaker. And Colorado's own Ken Buck is one reason yesterday's top vote-getter, Jim Jordan of Ohio, fell short for perspective on not just a house divided, but a party divided. Our Washington correspondent, Caitlin Kim, is on the line. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Ryan. You are at the Capitol. And what is on tap? Jim Jordan's going to try again. There is a second speaker vote that should happen shortly, and it will be a chance to see whether Jordan and his supporters managed to flip enough of yesterday's holdouts to get the gavel, or if, as some of his opponents have said, even more Republicans defect from supporting him. Now, if Jordan again fails to get the votes, we expect an attempt to try and give Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry the power to actually move legislation. Oh, a kind of half measure. In other words, there wouldn't be a formal speaker. You'd just empower the current pro tem. Right. So Mm. then he'd be able to actually move legislation and things would not be frozen like they are now. Well, indeed, the Coloradan you'll watch most closely today is Republican Ken Buck. Yesterday, you got to speak with him after Jordan failed to get the speakership on that first vote. What did Buck say? Yeah, that's right. I actually caught Buck in a hallway. I'd been looking for him after the vote, but didn't get him. And I was actually trying to go to Jim Jordan's office to see which lawmakers might be going in and out. Buck was not one of them. But on my way there, I saw him and I got to talk with him briefly as he was heading to his next thing. So why did you vote the way you did? Well, I am concerned about uh, Jim's position on Ukraine funding. I, uh, I haven't gotten the commitment that it will come to the floor. I'm concerned about the inability to uh, acknowledge that uh, Joe Biden won the election and uh, the activities surrounding January 6th. Jordan was one of the House Republicans who voted not to certify the election results for President Biden. He also refused to participate in the January 6th committee's investigation, even with a congressional subpoena. That committee's report concluded Jordan was in close touch with the Trump White House before January 6th over strategies to overturn the election. So, Lynn, is it at all surprising that Buck would consider any of that disqualifying? No, and that's for a couple of reasons. You know, Buck voted to certify the election results because he said the Constitution was pretty clear. Congress shall count the votes count, not choose which candidate they like better. And if you recall, he was also Colorado State Party chair during the 2020 elections, and he defended the way Colorado conducted its elections. You know, there was no fraud. It was safe and secure. But you also get this sense of frustration from him. You know, he is a former prosecutor that there are all these people throwing out these allegations of fraud and offering no concrete evidence. And he said a number of times that Republicans are supposed to be the law and order party. And that means being able to admit that Donald Trump did not win in 2020. Now, the other thing Buck mentioned to you, and I could hear you walking, I could hear his feet (laughs) 
clicking there on the stairs. Uh, he mentioned Ukraine, aid to Ukraine. He supports it. Jordan opposes it. Yes. And I think we all know that Buck is not exactly big on government spending, but he does think it's important to support our allies, including Ukraine. There's only one Colorado representative that doesn't support additional military aid for Ukraine, and that's Lauren Boebert. Now, Jordan didn't vote on additional military aid when Kevin McCarthy brought it to the floor in a separate vote at the end of September. And Buck isn't the only Republican concerned about that. A number of Republicans said it's important to them. But Jordan and a lot in that hard right wing have not been supportive of additional funding. It also doesn't help move Buck when Jordan says things like Congress needs to defund the Department of Justice or cut funding for the FBI. Again, going back to that idea of the Republicans being a law and order party. Any Republican speaker candidate will need virtually the entire caucus to line up behind them to win the gavel. Did Buck suggest whom he would support for speaker? You know, he didn't name names, but he thinks there are a lot of people who could be a good consensus candidate for House Speaker. In the first round, he voted for GOP whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota, and Emmer is a name that's been floated by others. Now, Buck joked that Emmer is a friend, so maybe throwing in his name into the mix probably wasn't something that a friend would do, because this is not the most popular job, believe it or not, in Congress right now. But what he doesn't think the conference should do is exactly what they're doing now, which is vote to see a candidate go down and just have these endless rounds of voting like they did in January. The way he sees it, House Republicans need to go back to the drawing board, you know, go back to conference to find a speaker that the entire conference can get behind. We'll, we'll just have to see, you know, what if we can develop a consensus in, in the conference. But this isn't the way to do it. It's not having another vote when you lose by 20 and you've got people who said they're only going to vote for you on the first ballot um, and not vote for you on the second ballot is just not a way to, to bring the conference together. But actually finding that consensus candidate, frankly, could take a lot of time. There's a lot of distrust, a lot of hurt feelings within the Republican caucus right now. And the events of the last two weeks have only deepened those fissures. Our D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim joins us as the House tries to find a speaker. Worth noting, Ken Buck was one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Speaker McCarthy. Then Buck wouldn't say last week whether he'd support Steve Scalise for speaker. Do any of those surprise you? You know, yes and no. Look, Buck isn't a rabble rouser just to be a rabble rouser. And there are some of those in the House Republican caucus. You know, he is a contrarian and he has his principles. And more importantly, he swum against the current of the conference before, whether it's continuing resolutions, voting against them or the corona aid packages. So he has a history of going his own way. But he wasn't going to go against the majority pick like Scalise, who also didn't vote to certify the election and also gave this squishy answer to Buck when he asked about Biden winning the 2020 election. But Scalise was not involved like Jordan was at helping the Trump administration and and former President Donald Trump formulate this plan to try and delay certification of the 2020 elections. Do you think that Ken Buck regrets voting to get rid of Kevin McCarthy? You know, I actually asked him that. Do you regret your vote to on, oust McCarthy at all? No, I regret my vote in January to put him in in the first place, but I don't regret my vote now. No. Right. Oh, definitive there. We've spent all this time on Buck, but where do Colorado's other two Republicans, Doug Lamborn and Lauren Boebert, fall? 
Lamborn and Boebert are both supporting Jordan, and I don't expect that to change in the next vote. You know, the representatives that are opposing Jordan are like defense hawks worried about cuts to defense spending and longtime appropriators who, again, who understand the need for cutting bipartisan deals and have seen how Jordan and his ilk in the past have wanted government shutdowns. What I do find interesting was that before the start of the Jordan vote yesterday, Lauren Boebert was preaching unity, saying on Twitter that there is far more that unites House Republicans and divides them, and that they need to come together, and that the party chose Jordan, and that's who they should elect. And it's more than a little ironic, because when the party chose Steve Scalise last week as the nominee, she came out of that meeting saying she wasn't going to vote for him. She Hmm. was going to vote for Jordan. And that has been a complaint some Republicans have leveled against Jordan and his supporters, that they've moved the goalpost and are calling for unity when it suits them after being more than willing to split the party in the past. Lynn, thanks for the preview and good luck with another day of this. (laughs) Thanks. I'm going to need it. CPR's D.C. correspondent, Caitlin Kim, who's been haunting the halls of the U.S. Capitol for the past two weeks as the House struggles to find a speaker. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The carnation grows quite well in Colorado's plentiful sunshine and cool nights. When an irrigation ditch brought Platte River water into Denver in the 1920s, the city's budding floral industry blossomed. Greenhouses extended the growing season, and Colorado quickly gained a reputation for producing year-round blooms of brilliant color and lasting quality. The Carnation Gold Rush was on. In 1927, the flowers generated more money than gold. And by the 1960s, Colorado Carnation growers sent a bouquet to the White House every week. But the oil embargo of the 70s cooled the region's greenhouses. And an effort to curb cocaine pruned the industry further, as farmers in Colombia were encouraged to quit growing coca and start growing carnations and other flowers. Cheaper South American blooms now dominate the market. But here in Colorado, every year, the Wheat Ridge Carnation Festival celebrates the state's floral history. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We spoke recently with the filmmaker Ken Burns, who has a new documentary on PBS called The American Buffalo. It focuses on the cultural and spiritual ties between Native Americans and the buffalo and the near extinction of the animals at the hands of white hunters fueled by the Industrial Revolution. Today, the restoration of buffalo, or bison to use the scientific name, in Colorado. We believe that the strength of the herds of buffalo who are coming back parallel our existence. We will never be strong as a people again until we have the buffalo back. That is Rick Williams with a nonprofit called People of the Sacred Land. He's featured in the new documentary, Return of the Buffalo, from Rocky Mountain PBS. Amanda Horvath is managing producer for the project. Danielle Seawalker is a member of the Lakota Nation and of the Denver American Indian Commission. She is featured in this documentary. And welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Danielle, uh, let's start with a project you've been involved with. So the city of Denver actually owns two buffalo herds. One's at Daniels Park, south of the city. The other is probably more familiar to people. It's in plain view, driving on I-70 in the foothills near Genesee. And for the last few years, as the herds have grown, the city of Denver has transferred some of those animals to tribes. Tell us how that came about. 
Yeah. So I believe it was in 2020 when the Denver Parks group had come to the Denver American Indian Commission and said, hey, we have an idea. Historically, we've always auctioned off some of these buffalo to private ranchers for profit. And we kind of want to take a different path on what we want to do with these uh, buffalo. What do you think about if we donate them to tribes? And of course, the commission was excited. Let me stop you there. Of course, Mm -hmm. you were interested. Why of course? Just speak to of course. We were, I mean, gosh, the to, to be donated and given some of these sacred animals um, with really no ties or catch, it's like, okay, well, yeah, of course we'll take them. Or, or of course we'll have tribes that are interested in taking them. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, the, the project ensued. And in March, I believe, of 2020 is when the first donation occurred. And it was probably more than a couple dozen that were given to area tribes here in Colorado or had historic ties to Colorado, um, the project has continued over the past few years, and we have done our latest donation earlier this spring. Aha. And speak more to why it's so meaningful. It's just meaningful on so many different layers and levels. Um, Number one, bison or buffalo are very culturally um, connected to many tribes, including the tribe I belong to. We're Buffalo Nation. We believe the buffalo are our relatives. Uh, Our creation stories and our emergent stories on Earth um, have a connection to buffalo. So they are the center of our life ways. But not only that, they're also very healthy in terms of feeding us, clothing us, giving us shelter historically. So... Being able to have these buffalo kind of be brought into different tribes also creates a genetic diversity to be able to mix the genes um, with the existing herds that these tribes have as well. Amanda, you indeed produced this film, Return of the Buffalo, about what's going on in Colorado. The Southern Ute have their own herd, not connected, by the way, to this Denver herd. It has more than 100 animals. You spoke for the documentary with Stacy Oberly, who's a member of the Southern Ute Tribal Council. It's about having our own sovereignty on how we want to take care of our land in, in a good way, how we want to keep our spiritual traditions alive and growing for our younger generation, and just an act of saying we're Native and we deserve to have this important part of our food chain, our natural environment, and our spirituality here in in abundance for us and our people. Well, note that Oberly is also a member of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, which is a collective of about 80 tribes with buffalo herds around the country. I understand the Southern Utes are using these buffalo to help sustain their tribe. Tell us a bit about that. This kind of speaks to the notion of using the whole animal, too. Yeah, they have had that herd, um, we found out, since the 80s, um, but it really didn't start growing until about 2015, where they had about 30 um, buffalo, and then they've grown it now to about 115, and this number is allowing that tribe to sustain their bison meat program. What they do is produce five pounds of buffalo meat for free, for available to each tribal member household, and there's about 1,500 Southern Ute tribal members. So that herd size is able to sustain that. And that food piece is something that Dr. Oberly and others with the Southern Ute tribe talked to us so much about is so important of the health reasons. Bison is healthy meat. It's lower fat than uh, cow and, and other meats like that. So this program really allows them to eat healthier. And then they also have um, 
some spiritual lessons that they do. They will go out to the herd every once in a while and take kids out there to um, have a ceremony and to harvest the buffalo out there in the field as more traditional to pass on that knowledge. And that's really also what this herd has allowed them to do. Mm-hmm. I think what strikes me as such a contrast is the difference between how indigenous people have and currently use bison, buffalo, and how white people used buffalo when they came west and brought the animal nearly to extinction. Danielle, is that something you'd reflect on for me? Yeah, I mean, the whole root cause of the extinction was was these settlers coming in and really wanting to just strip them of their fur. Fur trading at the turn of the century was very, very abundant and it was happening a lot. People sought it after as being very valuable to get these furs. And so it was just devastating. You'd look across the plains, and I've been told this by elders who have been, you know, they've been told these stories by their elders, Mm. that they would just look across the plains and see just piles of meat, essentially, animals that are just laying there dead without their fur, no other part of them harvested or taken and, and just in such a cruel way. Ken Burns spoke to us about the parallels between nearly bringing bison to extinction and what was very clearly a campaign to try to make indigenous identity extinct. Absolutely. That those are in parallel. Do you feel that? Yeah, I do. And I I know many other people do as well, um, because without the buffalo existing, we won't exist. We are one and the same. They're our relatives. And so with their near extinction, we were almost nearly extinct as well. Um, And today, you know, as you talk about being parallel, we're seeing buffalo herds grow. We're seeing more abundant herds within different tribes. And Native people can say the same thing. We are we are also here and have a voice and we are contributing successful members to society. And, and we're seeing more of that. In their resurgence, you see your own. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And I know that this has to play into why you've taken your sons to participate in this honoring of the animal by using its entirety. Yes. As Amanda had mentioned, you know, we do buffalo harvesting. When we take the meat, it's not just taking the meat or killing the buffalo. There's a whole ceremony that leads up to that, including when you take the life of the animal, you have to give thanks to it. You pray with it. You um, have ceremony. You give offerings. And then once it's time to get the meat, you know, you teach, use it as an educational moment to teach our next generations on how our ancestors utilize these animals. And we have to remember that we are relatives and they provide for us. So we have to have that same respect back to them. Um, So I did take my sons a few years ago to teach them their very first harvest. And they were taught every single piece of the animal down from the intestines to the stomach to taking a bite of the kidneys and the liver. Um, and how we have to honor that. It's not just about getting the meat. Is it about vocabulary and language as well? That is to say, and I don't assume that you speak Lakota, but I wonder if there is along with that a learning of particular words or ways of identifying an animal or parts of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, our languages were also stolen from us. Um, through the boarding school era. So it's, again, just this whole cultural genocide that's also, you can have it parallel and tied to the buffalo extinction. Um, So our languages, we're trying to slowly get that back as well. But absolutely, we have to try to speak as much as we can in our languages. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. It's very centric to our ceremonies and beliefs. 
I just would like to add the goal in talking about these documentaries. You know, I talked with Rick Williams, who we heard from earlier, and with Danielle when we were starting this process. And I think it became very clear that the point of this is also to show that they're still here and the buffalo are still here. And that is this. We're not talking about the past. This mm-hmm. isn't history. This is, you know, this is happening right now. Reactions and interactions with this national mammal that we have and that is so deeply rooted in, in so many different tribes and cultures. So that's really, I think, something to point out that this is this is not just history. When you speak to the contemporary nature of this, I think of the Denver fast casual restaurant Tokabe. Speak to their practices with bison. So they are one of the, if not the only, one of the only um, American Indian eateries in the Denver area. And so the bison is, of course, going to be on their menu because it is just so a part of their culture. And their goal from what from telling us was to tell the stories behind their food and not just on the menu, but they want to have conversations with people who come in and order this bison. What's better, the braised bison, the ground bison, and and have those conversations that then maybe lead to a deeper understanding as well. So from talking with Ben Jacobs, the co-owner of that restaurant for this documentary, he made it very clear that buffalo, of course, were a part of the menu because it was usually saved for, in his experience, special occasions like powwows or gatherings or things like that. And he wanted to make it more available for everyday eating for a wider general public to make it harken back to past times when it was a part of everyday dietary and and eating life. So, Amanda, I I feel like the most famous buffalo in Colorado is Ralphie, (laughs) the mascot for CU Boulder. What, what should our relationship to Ralphie be? What's your relationship to Ralphie after making this documentary? Yeah, I think that's a really tough question. And I think it's something that we're going to have to continue to look at. Obviously, what Ralphie does for for the hype and for the university um, is a lot. And that's something that a lot of CU alums really appreciate and love to see Ralphie and even, you know, other folks that love to see or run out on the field. But I think from my learning of people that I've talked to in this would say that all buffalo should be wild and free. But the the thing that I did learn about the folks, the Ralphie handlers, the program managers, they do really care for that animal and they seem to do best they can to work with her as a buffalo spirit. And, and the main program manager grew up on a cattle farm and she said right away, buffalo aren't cattle. You can't treat them like cattle. They do not respond well. They just don't have that personality. Um, So she has to think of that very differently. But they both see, um, she sees them and the assistant program manager see Ralphie every day in an undisclosed ranch that they won't tell anyone because they don't want her to be messed with. But yeah, so it's a tough, I think, conversation Mm. to have. Danielle, I just, there's such a long, painful history of uh, mascots. I mean, Mm -hmm. invoking indigenous people nations, names. You've spoken uh, so poetically about the meaning of bison and buffalo, and it it does make me wonder what you think when you see the buffs and you see Ralphie and... uh, 
Do you care to comment on that? I Yeah, I, I'll comment on it. Um, a few years ago, myself, as well as a few other um, Indigenous community members, worked to pass legislation on banning mascots here in the state of Colorado. So that was a really proud moment that that came um, to that, reality. That invoked the tribes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and, and just kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier, these buffalo are our relatives. We don't, you know, we they are centric to our lifeways. So to kind of see the mascot being engaged with that university is heartbreaking for me to, to know that. And I've never been to a game. I've never witnessed like what goes on. I've only been told, but from what I understand that this Buffalo goes into the center of the field sometimes and is ran through and uh, like thousands of people are cheering and that's traumatic to the Buffalo. And I don't, that's just not a natural thing to be doing. Would you say that your objection is, is mostly about, the live animal? Yes, I would say versus, so. Versus the mascot? Yeah, I think having a, a buffalo mascot is okay, but just bringing and involving that live animal and having it that be its life is really heartbreaking to me. And even, I mean, even when we interviewed you, I, I don't think you had known that much about Ralphie mm-hmm. then either. So mm-hmm. our goal, like I said, was to show how buffalo are still in, in, in the state. And we had conversations of, do we include Ralphie or not? And we ultimately decided to include it just because it is such an iconic animal that I feel like it would have been missing and people would have had questions about it. Is it a conversation you hope to get started? I mean, the one that Danielle is invoking? Yeah, I think that's a really good conversation. You know, if we compare the numbers of Buffalo today to the numbers before Manifest Destiny and White Movement West, it's still a relative drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very interested, Danielle, in what you h- hope for in the future. Ooh. I mean, the, the, no- <laughs> the, the notion of an, a full, you know, resplendent rebound to the, you know, millions of animals that existed before I don't know. Does that does that seem reasonable to you or does that just seem like a pipe dream? Yeah, I don't ever think we'll see millions across the plains and prairies like we once did. That's for sure. Just like you'll never see millions of Native Americans ever again. But the fact that we're still here, we're thriving, we are growing and we see that with our relatives, the buffalo relatives. I think it's just important. We just want to be able to have it be part of our everyday life. We don't want to have you know, the buffalo be thought of as something that's a special occasion or only, you know, during a special ceremony or gathering. It should be back part of our everyday life. Hmm. And I think that is a very reasonable thing that we can achieve. But it takes more than just Native people to be saying this and talking about this. We need allies and other people Mm -hmm. to help bring this to fruition. Would you go so far as to say that a non-Indigenous person eating buffalo is engaging, if they eat meat, is engaging in an act of a- allyship? I don't know. Is that, is that too reductive? I think, um, I'm not really sure about the consumption of the meats uh-huh. and how that works, but like, for instance, the example of how Denver Parks and Rec came to the Native community and said, hey, listen, we'd love to um, shift what we've been doing historically and auctioning these buffalo off, but giving them back, gifting them to tribes. Mm-hmm. That's the type of allyship that I am thinking of and and would love to continue seeing in other ways. That is Danielle Seawalker, who's featured in the new documentary, Return of the Buffalo. She's a member of the Lakota Nation and of the Denver American Indian Commission. 
We also heard from Amanda Horvath, managing producer for this new Rocky Mountain PBS film. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nancy Lawholm. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.